eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey clones, I've got a question for you. A really important question. Why is Old Trapper beef jerky so good? Hey listen, I mean there's something to be said for a family business which stands by quality and produces the world's finest beef jerky. And it is that do not be fooled by other brands. All beef jerky is not one and the same. Make sure you choose Old Trapper, where you can actually see the quality right through their iconic Clearview packages. That's why it's in that Clearview package, so you can see exactly what you're getting. Every bite of Old Trapper is amazing because they use only the best ingredients from their lean strips of beef seasoned with top quality spices to the real wood-fired smoke. Old Trapper delivers quality in every single bite. And Old Trapper Jerky comes in four great flavors. Old Fashioned, Teriyaki, Peppered, and Hot and Spicy. All chock full of good protein to satisfy your manliest hunger cravings and to provide real sustained energy. Make sure you have a good supply on hand for you and your family when you hit the grocery store. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares Old Trapper What's Your Beef. Look, Mike Tyson wrote me a letter in jail. One paragraph said, they'll let me go tomorrow if I would admit to this rape. However, I'll never admit to something I didn't do. Next paragraph. However, there are four or five other things that I've done throughout the course of my life that are worse than what I'm accused of. Therefore, I feel I'm at the right place at this time. So he gets out of jail and he lets me do the first interview with him. He said, you can ask me anything you want. So I asked him that. What was worse? It's probably best not to answer this on national television. Hey now, it's cracking. Welcome back from the holiday break and welcome to episode 153 of the Jim Rohn Podcast. This week, my guest is a 12-time Emmy Award winner, a three-time Sports Reporter of the Year. He is a Boxing Hall of Fame inductee and a brand new author as well. I'm talking about Jim Gray. Jim Gray has been doing this for a long time. He has talked to every single A-list sports figure that there is, and he has got stories for days, stories that he's put into his new book, Talking to Goats, and stories that he will break down right here and right now. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Let's not waste another second. Episode 153 with Jim Gray starts right now. Great to see you, Jim. How are you? I'm fantastic, Jim. Great to be with you. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate you making time. All right, so given how long you've done this and the number of people that you've interviewed, I would imagine it was a pretty exhaustive process. What was the experience of putting it all down on paper like for you personally? 
Jim, it was really, really hard. You know, I've never written anything, you know, since I got out of college. <laughs> really, I mean, I wrote a few articles here or there or contributed to a, a, an editorial online, but uh, it took about three years, and, and I had a lot of help. Uh, Greg Bishop from Sports Illustrated, great writer, uh, he wrote the book with me, and he organized these tens of thousands of interviews and gone through transcripts and videotapes and DVDs and 43 years of stuff. So uh, I was really lucky to have him, and uh, he just did a brilliant job of, of, of organizing it all and writing it, and uh, I'm really grateful to him. But uh, this was really hard. The The process is really uh, really unique and interesting, and it's so much different than broadcasting. I, I just really had no idea. You know, I would imagine that. Like, for instance, Jim, way back in the day, I was approached about doing a book, and I said yes, and I never got around to it, and I still haven't gotten around to it. So I'm going to pick your brain about this at one point. Let me ask you this. You could have started the book anywhere with anyone, yet you dedicated the opening chapter to Mike Tyson. Why Mike? I think just because of the association that we've had together and, and you know, what Mike says on the back of the book, you know, that uh, we became a great duo. And so I think people... Uh, think that. Uh, they associate me. Uh, that's mostly what I get when I'm out there. You know, it's either the Pete Rose interview or the Tyson airbiting seems to come up the most, or Tom Brady. But uh, the Tyson airbiting was so unique. And just having done all of his fights and known him since uh, before, he was the youngest heavyweight champion ever. And, you know, the fact that uh, his life has been such a roller coaster and there's so much in there that you can talk about and write about that are experiences that I've had that people haven't seen, that I've seen firsthand. So that's just why I decided to do that. There was, there was no really other rhyme or reason to it. Sure. Now, I'm going to follow you up on a few of those things that you mentioned, but like you and I, for instance, Jim, have a few things in common. We have shared experiences. We have common friends. And we have this. Mike Tyson said that he wanted to kill both of us. Now, <laughs> when did you get your death threat from Mike, and how concerned were you when it happened? <laughs> I got it a couple of times, actually. <laughs> but one that, one that really stands out um, was when he threatened to kill me and kill Don King, uh, when he was starting to become aware that maybe things weren't just quite as they thought with Don. And he said he would kill me, and I, and I asked him why. And 45 seconds later, Jim, he kissed me on my cheek, and let me tell you, all these years later, it's still far, far more disturbing that he kissed me than threatened to kill me. <laughs> How amorous. <laughs> That's something else. You know, so you mentioned you mentioned the ear biting. Like to this day, Jim, Mike biting off a chunk of Evander Holyfield's ear during a fight is still one of the craziest things ever. You were there. What did you think when you saw that? I couldn't believe it. I mean, I actually saw it. I saw it as it happened and I comprehended it immediately. And I had Steve Albert, who was with me on Showtime, and he was the play by play guy, did a great job and he's in the Hall of Fame, but he, he recognized it immediately, too. And so I had it in my ear, and I saw the ear, and then I saw Mike, like, spit it out, and then Holyfield put his glove up to his ear and started jumping around, and Mills Lane kind of came in and took a look at it and, and allowed the fight to proceed. So I knew right then that I had never seen anything like that. There had never been anything like that, at least, you know, that I was aware of. And uh, I said, wow, um, this is this is insane. I mean... I mean, who does that? That's, you know, not only despicable, but they're going to continue to fight. So this guy's got a gash over his head, Tyson, that was very, very deep, and the other guy's missing part of his ear. So here we go. Yeah, like you mentioned that you, you were able to comprehend what was going on as it happened. Like, in retrospect, as you process this, and you, and you know Mike, and you, spoke, and you spoke to Mike, why do you think he did that in that moment? Well, he has said, and he has been consistent in it, uh, that he was being headbutted 
from the first fight, and he complained vociferously to Mitch Halpern, who was the referee in the first fight, that you know what Holyfield was doing was illegal and wrong, and it was causing him to be debilitated. Well, Tyson lost the first fight. So the first thing that he said to Mills Lane and the Nevada State Athletic Commission was, he'd been headbutting me all the time. You've got to keep an eye on this because he's going to do it again. That's how he fights, and that's how he, you know, it's part of his strategy. That's how Tyson felt. Well, lo and behold, he got that huge gash over his eye. And, Jim, you know, we've, we've both seen sports for a long time. I mean, seen everything that can happen. This is the only time in my life where I have actually seen somebody else's skull. I saw the orbital bone and the white of his skull because that's how deep that wound was. So Tyson was being headbutted, and Mills Lane determined that it was accidental. He did not determine uh, that points should be taken away. So Tyson felt that he had to retaliate, that, that there was no way that he could continue uh, being debilitated like this without having some form of pain on the other side. So that's what he did. It's interesting, right? Like Teddy Atlas, Jim, has always said, and said it in the aftermath, hey, listen, the guy was looking for a way out. And, you know, and Teddy does this thing where you're a Spartan or you're not. You pay the price or you don't. And Mike was not having his way. He knew he couldn't win. He was looking for a way out where he could save face and still be a savage. So that's what he did. Do you buy into that at all? I love Teddy. He's a dear friend. We've worked the Olympics together for NBC. Uh, I've been on his podcast. Uh, we stay in touch. I don't agree with that. I, I, I just don't agree with that. I don't think that. I think that Tyson wanted redemption, and he wanted to come back from losing the first fight, and he wanted to win. And he was having his best round of the three rounds when he was doing this. So um, maybe Teddy, you know, because he's, he, he psychologically understands fighters better, having trained champions and, and been in that position, you know, could make that assessment, having known Mike and, and, and known his makeup. But I don't feel that way. Hmm. So, Jim, where and when did you first interview Muhammad Ali? I first interviewed Muhammad Ali when I was 18 years old. I was a videotape editor. I had just uh, become uh, a, a sports intern from the University of Colorado in the journalism school, and my internship ran out, and it was all the way back in 1977 and 78. They were converting from film to videotape, Jim. <laughs> so all of the film guys took the buyout. Uh, they did not want to um, learn a new craft. So wow. a bunch of young people, guys and girls, uh, were given this opportunity. Well, I was in my edit booth real early in the morning getting ready to uh, edit the Red Miller show. He was the Denver Broncos sure. coach at that time, and they were getting ready for the draft or whatever we were doing with, with, with Red Miller's show. And in came a woman named Sue Tews, who was the assignment editor, and she said, you're the sports intern, you know something about sports. And I said, well, yeah. She said, Muhammad Ali's two and a half hours early at the airport. Please run out and interview him. Uh, there's nobody else here. Well, back then, nobody had a cell phone. Nobody had a beeper. Nobody had anything. If you didn't answer your home phone at 7.15, 7.30 in the morning, they couldn't find you. So they couldn't find the sports anchors. They couldn't find, you know, the reporters. They couldn't find the news anchors. So it fell to me. So I wasn't dressed. I ran all around the station, tried to find a, a coat and a tie, and went to the weatherman's office. But he was like about five foot three, so it didn't fit. So I just ran out and did it. I, I got there. I saw Ali, sat down to do the interview. I asked my first question, Jim, and he said, you're the one doing the interview? And the whole entourage laughed. Right. Well, that laugh wasn't a laugh at me. That laugh helped me relax. Hmm. That, just, that just took all of the edge off because he was having fun with it. By about the third or fourth question, he said, you sound like the local Howard Cosell. Huh. That was the greatest compliment I ever had in my life, Jim. So anyway, 
did the interview for about 45 minutes. He was great. We talked about everything. He was getting ready to uh, uh, fight uh, Spinks again, and uh, he was getting ready to, uh, uh, after that, have an exhibition against Lyle Alzado, who was a Denver Bronco, which is why he was in Denver, to promote both fights. So I came back to the station to edit myself out. They weren't going to put me on TV, and the news director, a man named Roger Ogden, walked in, and he knew me, but he didn't know me well. He said, let me see that Ali interview. So we watched it for 45 minutes twice. So he spent an hour and a half in my booth. And the guy barely knew my name, Jim, before this. You know, he knew who I was, and he knew he had hired me, but hadn't spent any time. He looked at me and he said, you and this tape are going on the air. It's barely adequate. <laughs> so I tell everybody I've been barely adequate ever since. Barely adequate. That's a great, great story. I think we'd all agree this has been some crazy, crazy year with a whole lot of stress. And the stress of daily life weighs on every last one of us. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are or what you do, whether you're an elite athlete or just a regular person trying to get through the day, muscle pain and muscle tension is a real thing. I'm no different. This is why I use Theragun. What an amazing product. It's a handheld percussive therapy device which releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And right now, it does all that, and it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. That's because the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor that is so quiet, you're going to wonder if, in fact, it's even on. All while soothing your aching muscles with Theragun's signature power, amplitude, and effectiveness. This product blows my mind. Try Theragun yourself for 30 days. There is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power that you need. It starts at only $199. Go to theragun.com slash roam. theragun.com slash roam right now. Get your Gen 4 Theragun today. I've got mine. I use it. I love it. That's theragun.com slash roam. Theragun.com slash roam. You mentioned, Jim, Howard Cosell and the fact that Muhammad Ali, and of course, he was very closely entwined with Howard Cosell, that he said, you know, you're like a local Howard Cosell, and you felt like that was a great compliment. What about Cosell? Did you have much interaction with him? What did you, what kind of a rea- or what kind of a connection did you have to Howard Cosell? Howard was very good to me as a young man and uh, was, was very encouraging. And uh, I, I got to go to lunch with him on four or five occasions at the uh, Friars Club in New York uh, when I was a young uh, reporter and a freelance reporter for uh, ESPN. And then as I got to know him better, uh, I would see him from time to time at, at events, and he would always have, you know, five or ten minutes for me. And then uh, when I got hired by ESPN, a man named Herb Granith, who ran ABC Video Enterprises, uh, and was very close to Howard and had an influence. Uh, he was on the board of ESPN every year, would ask me to go cover the Cosell, which was like the Dinah Shore uh, for celebrities and people. Uh, it was a one-day golf tournament out in Palm Springs. So I went out there for several years, and Howard always appreciated the fact that I would come out and do that for ESPN. And, and he would talk to me, and, you know, he would just, he would just, he, he really was, you know, just a fountain of knowledge. And he was giving of his time with me. And, you know, he was encouraging me, but he'd also kid me too. Jimmy, please, make something of yourself. <laughs> Get out of television while you can. You're much too smart for this. Children Funny. playing at television. Make a life for yourself. Why would you subject your, yourself to people like Rune? Why would you want to have that in your life? Right. 
And, and he was kidding, but it was kind of seemed a little on the level, too. Like, don't go too far into this, but also you've got a little bit here, and I'm trying to help you. That is funny. All right, so you mentioned Tom Brady. Of course, that comes up, obviously, when people see you and they want to know about Brady, what's he like. He keeps an extremely tight circle. So, Jim, how were you able to develop the kind of relationship you have with Tom Brady? You know, that's kind of hard to identify. You know, it's, a, it's, it's true friendship, Jim, is reciprocal, and true relationships are reciprocal. So it's not like you can just decide, you know, hey, I want to be friends with Jim Rome or Tom Brady or whoever, Kobe Bryant, Muhammad Ali. They have to want it in return. So that gets hard to identify. What, how do you establish a connection that somebody else feels the same way? Well, it just kind of happened. So I, I had covered Tom. I, I had never met Tom until he played in his first Super Bowl. Uh, I wasn't at the Orange Bowl or didn't cover college sports at that time, uh, and I wasn't there during the season before he took over for uh, Drew Bledsoe. Uh, so I met him at the Super Bowl uh, when I was working and still working with Westwood One, and we do the pregame interview a day or two before the, uh, the game. So he spent the 10 or 15 minutes with me, and it all went well, and we put the interview on the air, and then after the game they had me interview him on the field, and then after that I said, Tom, when you're through with the trophy, can I interview you for the Today Show? And he said, sure. So he came back out on the field. We did the interview. And so from then, probably for the next whatever it was, five or seven years, just would interview him during the season. He gave me his cell phone number, and he always picked it up. And he was a guy that rarely said no. In fact, I don't think he ever said no. And I would call him sometimes on short notice and say, you know, we don't have anybody for pregame or halftime or whatever. Or can I come do something with you? And he always said yes. So Mike Ditka had to quit doing the radio program. He was my partner for a long time, and Don Shula retired from the radio program. So I just, by total accident, saw Tom Brady watching his son, his young son Jack, play tennis in Los Angeles over at Riviera. And I went up to him and said hello, and we were just talking and watching his son. And I said, hey, Tom, uh, Dick can't do this anymore because of a conflict with ESPN. Would you be interested in doing a a radio talk show every Monday night for five minutes? 10 minutes, and then halftime as well. And he said, well, what does that entail? And went into it a little more. He said, let me think about that. Well, I was fully expecting a no. And Tom's not a guy who likes to say no, but I was fully expecting a no. Well, about 10 days later, he called back and he said, I want to do that. And the thing that blew me away, Jim, is like a week before the season started, he sent me a handwritten letter. And the letter said, I'm really looking forward and excited about this opportunity. And just know that you'll get the same effort out of me on Monday nights that I give my teammates on Sunday afternoons. Hmm. That just blew me away. That is something. You know, you mentioned, Jim, like relationships and friendships. And in our business and the work we do, obviously, you need relationships. You need access. But in terms of what we do, there is that line, and it's a fine line. So where do you draw the line between a relationship and a friendship? Well, I don't think I have to draw a line because I think that the line ends when we're on the air. And if there's something in the public domain or something that you've done on the field or on the court or, or on the green that you have to be asked about, that you understand that when you agree to do the interview and that you're going to be asked about it. You know, there's something to it. Like, I, I've done this. You and I, like, we have to do the tough interviews. And not only do we have to do interviews. Like, for instance, I've had this forum, Jim, as you know, for three hours a day, four hours a day, five hours a day, where you want that access, but I've tried very, very hard 
to maintain that objectivity, as I know you have too. But it's hard because you like you don't want to get too close, but it's natural to have a certain relationship. But then if you have a certain relationship based on years of time and years of interviews, and then if that person were to step out of line or do something really egregious, then there is a job to do. At the end of the day, we still have a job to do. And that can be challenging, but we have a job to do. I guess that's what I'm getting at. You have to do the job no matter what. And that, that can be, that's not always the easiest job to do. It's a great job, but it's not always the easiest job to do because people are involved. Correct. And, and it's not comfortable. And, but you have to because you have to do it for the people you work for and with. You have to do it for yourself, and you have to do it for the audience. That's it. And so I think you have to be true to those folks. Otherwise, you can't do your job. So, look, they all understand you're doing your job. Is it, was it pleasant to ask Tom about some of the things that went on? you know, with Deflategate or, you know, some other throwing interceptions at untimely times or, or when he lost to, to uh, the, uh, the uh, Giants in the Super Bowl or the Eagles? No, it's not pleasant at all. And, and internally, you know, I feel bad for him. I'm his friend. But that doesn't mean that somehow during those seven minutes, eight minutes, ten minutes, whatever the time period is, that we don't talk about what it is that's occurring. And... It didn't matter who that was, whether it was Kobe or Ali or Tiger or any of these folks. Tyson, I mean, Tyson, I mean, Tyson and Don King, you know, I asked those people, somebody, look, Mike Tyson wrote me a letter in jail, uh, Jim, a five-page handwritten letter that came to my house. And he said, in that letter, um, one paragraph said, they'll let me go tomorrow if I would admit to this rape. However, I'll never admit to something I didn't do. Next paragraph. However, there are four or five other things that I've done throughout the course of my life that are worse than what I'm accused of. Therefore, I feel I'm at the right place at this time. So he gets out of jail and he lets me do the first interview with him. And I said, Mike, is this a private letter or a public letter? Can I ask this or would you prefer I didn't? He said, you can ask me anything you want. So I asked him that. What was worse? And he looked over at his attorney and he looked back at me and he said, it's probably best not to answer this on national television because I don't know the statute of limitations. However, what I told you is true. Hmm. So you have to ask the questions. I mean, look, uh, people often say, "Are you, do, do you step in line of your friendships or, or, or have you offended these people? And I didn't have a good answer until about a year ago, two years ago, Jim, when Tyson, uh, matter of fact, came up and, and did my induction into the Boxing Hall of Fame, and we were at a forum, and somebody asked me that question, and I said, you know what? This guy just got hit in the head 110 times by Evander Holyfield. Tom Brady's been sacked four times by Michael Strahan. LeBron James and Kobe Bryant have had their toes stepped on for 48 minutes, and they've been elbowed in the head. Do you really think that anything I can say to them is more offensive than the than the opponent they just faced, and if they couldn't take my question, how could they have possibly been hit in the head a hundred times? Yeah, you know, it's it is interesting, isn't it? Like what they will and will not take offense to. Like Jim, for instance, you mentioned Don King, and I can remember years and years of just wild circus interviews with Don King, and to him, I mean, Don King. What a character. You literally could say anything at all to him. And I can remember all the interviews, Jim, that I did with him. He only got mad once. He only got mad once at one question. And I was really surprised what set him off. And I don't even remember why or the context, but I did ask him at one point, 
Don, do you, are you affiliated with the mob in any way? And he was really upset. You know, he dropped. His, his exact response to me was, they don't let N-bombs in the mob. And he was really mad. Like, you've known him or worked with him a lot. Do you ever remember asking him that set him off or got him mad? Because nothing ever did except for that for some reason. He got mad at me a couple of times. But he always told me before I, I, I ever did anything with him, ask me anything I want, anything you want, and never protect me or the fighters. I can handle any of it. It's not a problem. Well, one time we were in Mexico City, and uh, it was the week that he had been robbed, and it was the uh, Chavez fight, and there turned out to be a riot in the ring afterwards, but he was also slapped on that fight with that $100 million lawsuit by Mike Tyson. Well, I asked this guy, you know, he had killed somebody and got pardoned, you know, later on for manslaughter. Uh, But I asked him if he stole some money from Mike Tyson and how come, you know, there was money from being taken from Mike for uh, the uh, fan club that he had signed up and was going to his son or whoever was going to. It was something, you know, didn't look right. Well, I asked him all of these questions. And, you know, he kept saying, once I get past my criminal lawsuit because he had something else that was going on and he would take care of the civil portion and you know so but anyway we finished the interview and he walked away fine and then the next day he called me up and he said and he was screaming he said a friend would not have done that you would not have used those words and done it in that fashion and he was screaming and hollering and i really didn't even get a chance to respond and about three days later he called back and he said you know what I told you you could ask me anything, and you did. And he said I should not have. I should not have called you and said that. Hmm. You know, it's yeah. That didn't surprise me at all. He he'd run hot, and then it'd be okay. And then I can't, Jim. When I think about this, I can't help but chuckle because I know exactly how you're going to feel when I ask you about Pete Rose because it's the same way I probably feel when people ask me about Jim Everett. We've both heard these questions a million times for decades. But with that in mind, let me ask you this: because this, let's go. If we were to go a little bit deeper and come at it a different way, prior to that interview in 1999, when you pressed Pete during the World Series about the gambling allegations that led to his banishment from the game, I'm curious: what was the process leading up to the interview? you like for instance did the network just say jim you're probably going to be talking to pete rose tonight just be ready or was there a discussion or a production meeting where you sat with producers and or executives and discussed what the strategy would be for an interview of that magnitude well you the second portion is exactly what happened and you you're in television for how long now jim 30 years about sure okay nobody does anything in television by themselves nobody anywhere not a, not on the network Never. So we had a meeting, and we discussed if, what would happen with Pete Rose, and it came all the way from the top down, from Dick Ebersol to Sam Flood. Bob Costas was consulting with me. Bob's a brilliant mind. I turned to Bob all the time for advice and for, and for his thought process. Joe Morgan, who was a former teammate, Bob Euchre, everybody knew what was coming if Pete agreed to do the interview. So I went out there and, you know, wasn't trying to fulfill the agenda of the network. It's just what we discussed. It was the first time that he would be on the field for 10 years since he signed his own banishment and, and since the gambling allegations uh, had taken him away from baseball. So everybody at NBC was on board. Well, the interview got contentious, and it just kind of careened uh, out of control and snowballed. And it, it, it went, you know, down that slippery slope and, and became a point where it was, wasn't retrievable. And, you know, when you look back at it and where I was, Jim, for the ceremony was in the Yankees dugout. 
And being in the Yankees' dugout, I was a considerable distance away from where this was taking place, just beyond second base, uh, shallow center field. Uh, I couldn't see, like the folks at home could see, the beauty and the help that that Ted Williams was getting to stand up and, and, and get onto the stage. I couldn't hear the violins and the trumpets uh, that were being played, the melancholy music and what that stirs in people when they get to see Stan Musial and Sandy Colfax and all of their heroes from yesteryear. To me, the ceremony was coming across flat to my naked eye in the stadium. The only rousing ovations came for Hank Aaron, who was the home run king and a former Atlanta Brave, and for Pete Rose. Got rousing ovations. The whole rest of it, the only thing that sounded really cool was Vince Scully speaking because I wasn't watching television. Well, that was a mistake. When you're on television, you should be watching television. So I wasn't seeing or feeling what the audience at home was feeling. So I can understand how they felt it was abrupt and a great change in tone after I went back and looked at the interview on tape, like Dick Ebersall suggested I should a day or two after, and saw that they had this beautiful, warm feeling of their childhood and their and their and you know their baseball heroes celebration of you know the all century team, something that Vin Scully said we'll never see the likes of again in our lives, and now all of a sudden I'm asking gambling questions. So, you know, there was a lot to have learned from that. The content of the questions it was exactly right, and in any other setting at any other time, you know, probably nobody would have had a problem with it. No, I, the line of questioning, uh, to me, was there was nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, these are questions that have been asked before, questions I'm sure that you would pose to him before. But again, very few of us have kind of lived through something like that. So I'm curious, Jim, in the days immediately thereafter, how great was the pushback and what was the vitriol like? What were those days like? Well, they, they were difficult. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've never, you know, had that onslaught and this was pre-internet okay so you know the calls that were coming in to the network and to local stations and you know i would listen to my my voicemail and it would be you know you used to call your voicemail you have 335 new messages you have 335 unheard messages well i'd listen to a few and they were threats and we're gonna kick your ass and we're gonna if we ever see you and all of this and so i would just hit 337 deleted the whole mailbox Okay, then you'd call back in a half an hour and it was full again. Okay, so and then talk radio was, you know, at its at its height during that era. Again, there was no social media and no Internet. So so that's where fans would be able to express themselves. Well, I tune in local radio and go driving home and, you know, everybody was so upset. And, you know, if I ever see him and all of this and then, you know, the network was getting inundated with mail over the next few days and. You know, then I come to Yankee Stadium to do the next game, and, you know, I'm having police protection. And there's somebody sitting outside my room uh, at the hotel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was, and, and, and then I was sitting in the dugout either during the game that it happened or the next game at Yankee Stadium, and all the cameras are pointed at me. And, you know, it's a World Series going on here, guys. So, yeah, there was a, it was a lot to, um, you know, a lot to take in and something that I wasn't used to. I had tremendous support, tremendous support from my wife, Fran, and from the network with Dick Ebersol and Bob Costas, and everybody was, you know, was was, was great. Uh, but externally, there was no problem internally. I mean, Bud Selig uh, wanted me removed 
uh, from the uh, World Series championship trophy. Uh, but Ebersol told him, Jim's my guy, and if, you know, the Yankees behave in the fashion that they did tonight, uh, we won't present the trophy. You can present that trophy during spring training, and we're going to go to cartoons. And he told him that. And uh, so, um, you know, one of the stories that's in the book, Jim, in the Talking to Goats book, uh, I talk about uh, George Steinbrenner, uh, the night that uh, Chad Curtis uh after after we came back to New York for Game 3, Chad Curtis hit that home run to win the game, and then he said on the air he wouldn't talk to me because of the interview with Pete Rose. So now I was being boycotted by the Yankees. Well, he came to my room at 1.30 at night, or thereabouts, knocked on the door, and I thought it was the security guard who wanted something to eat who was sitting outside my door, or you know he wanted to use the restroom. So I opened the door. I was in my shorts, Jim, and there was George Steinbrenner in his coat and tie, and he said, can I come in? And I said, sure, Mr. Steinbrenner. And he said, let me just tell you a couple things here. There was nothing wrong with that interview. I'm okay with that interview. And what happened tonight with Chad Curtis does not represent how the Yankees feel, how I feel, or how anybody in my organization feels. And I said, thank you. And he stuck out his hand to shake, and he said, let me say this to you. I'm not getting ahead of myself. And he was a superstitious man. He said, but if we're so fortunate, they were up 3-0 in the series, to win that title. I will stand next to you during the trophy presentation, and there won't be a single Yankee who doesn't treat you with courtesy and respect. Not a single one of them will be out of line, and everyone who feels that way won't be up there on that podium. And he was true to his word. He stood there the entire time. Usually the owner takes the trophy and walks away. George stood there the whole time, and he kept all that band away. He didn't let Chad Curtis up there. He didn't let O'Neill up there. He didn't let any of those guys... Uh, Strawberry, who were negative and upset with me, anywhere near that celebration that night. You know, Jim, it's amazing. Like, I feel like, you know, for lack of a better phrase, I'm looking in a mirror because I live this very thing. And I mean, not the exact thing, but the very thing. And that's when I ask you in a line of questioning, like, what was it like and what were the days like? It's because I remember what it was like. I remember what the days were like. I remember those who did stand by you. You mentioned Fran, and I know Fran, of course. But, of course, your close family and friends will be there. But you wonder professionally who's going to be there. And when it really hits the fan, you remember who was there for you professionally. Like, I've told the story before, Jim, on the air a number of times. But the day after Everett came over the table... When all hell broke loose, and it was very similar to you, there was not the internet, there was not that social media, but there was heat. There was a lot of heat, and it was coming down. When everybody was coming for my throat, it was Al Michaels who had been booked already, and when he very easily could have said, oh, hell no, I'm not doing that show, I'm not going there, because we had an existing relationship. Al came in and did the show the very next night. And then after the fact, you know, be it months or whatever it was, I said, Al, why did you do that? Why did you do that? You didn't need to do that. You were Al Michaels, and I was somebody on the way up, and I was really very toxic to most people in the world. He said, Romy, because I knew you, I knew what you were about, I knew your work ethic, and I knew that you probably needed a friend in that moment. Like, those are the things you never, ever forget when you go through something like that. That's a great story. I didn't know that. It's a great story. Well, I had I had that support, and I had it, believe it or not, from Don King and from Jack Nicholson and, and from uh, other people in sports, but Al Davis. Al Davis was a big help. Al Davis called the next day, and, and, and he, you know, had a lot of wisdom and advice. And, and then about a week or so later, he called again, and he said, 
Does it bother you that those who know you best and your closest friends won't stand up and say something and do the right thing? And I said, well, yeah, Al, it does bother me. And he said, you can't let it. And I said, why is that? He said, because it's just normal. They don't want to intertwine themselves in your problems. They don't want to take it on and make it theirs. They have families to feed. Uh, they just can't do it. He said, so don't be mad at people for being normal. Hmm. Be grateful for people who are abnormal. Listen, do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. So go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. So after more, Jim, than two decades, you finally sit down with Pete and you interviewed him recently for Fox News. Why was that so important to you and how did that go? It went great. Uh, Fox was nice enough. Fox News gave me a special on the book, uh, Talking to Goats. It was on last Saturday. It's uh, Sunday night. It's going to replay on Fox Sports 1 and Fox Nation and Fox Broadcast and so forth. And they... um, uh, I went back and talked to a lot of the people who had been, you know, interviewed throughout my career, some of these goats, Eric Dickerson, Tom Brady, Mike Tyson, uh, and, and Lonnie Ali to represent Muhammad. And, and I thought, you know, I had seen Pete a couple of times, and he came up to me at a cancer dinner, uh, not this summer because of COVID, but the summer before. And I was introducing Mike Tyson for an award, and he was being honored, too. And... Pete Rose walked over to our table, and I said to Fran, uh-oh, who knows how this is going to go. He, I, I got up and stood up, and he extended his hand, and he said, Jim, you do a great job. You're just terrific at your job. And I looked at him, and I said, what? And he repeated it, and I said, you really don't mean that, Pete. You really don't mean that. And he said, no, I do. It's been a long time since that interview. A lot has gone on in both of our lives, and what I'm saying is sincere. And I said, well, well, thank you for coming over. I appreciate that. And Mike Tyson got up. And Pete said to Mike, hey, Mike, who do you think would have won that fight between me and Jim all those years ago? <laughs> Tyson said, there's no question Jim would have, Jim would have won that fight. No Funny. question. Right. right. So um, I felt like, you know, the ice had been broken. And as I look back on it, you know, Pete has apologized. He said it's been a huge mistake. And, and I've forgiven Pete, you know. I, I, I wouldn't want to go through it again, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but, you know, I learned a lot about myself and how I could have done better, and I learned a lot about other people that I never would have before, so I figured, you know, with this special, I thought, let me just call Pete, so I got his number, called him out of nowhere, took the call right away, and he said, yes, let's do it, so I went and spoke to him for a little over an hour in Las Vegas, and uh, put the interview on the air, and he, he he said, you know, he went through it as to why he didn't admit it that night and to why he was scared and that, you know, had he admitted it uh, originally that he couldn't have fed his family, that baseball was all he knew and he had two little kids and there was nowhere for him to go, so he didn't think they had the evidence, so he thought if I lied, I would get out of this and turned out they did have the evidence, he said, and, and they had it nailed and he said to me that I was just doing my job uh, but the problem with, with Pete was that anybody who was in his way, who was just doing his job, you know, he just ran over, just like Ray Fossey. 
So it didn't matter whether that was Bart Giamatti or John Dowd or Faye Vincent or any reporter, me, whoever. It just, you know, that was just part of his M.O. And so, um, and then at the end of the interview, I asked him, does he still bet on baseball? And he said, yes, Mm. which surprised me. He said, yes, I do. But he said, I only bet on it legally now. I used to bet illegally. Now I bet at the casino. It's kind of like when the argument always was, yeah, but he never bet on his team to lose. Right, but on those days where he didn't bet, it was a bet for the team to lose. You know, that, that line of thinking, I, I never really accepted that, but I understand. I, no, well, I, I don't, I don't understand. Team, Jim, yeah. by not betting on your team, you send a signal to the That's bookies. it. Get your That's money it. back. I, I can't yeah. tell you how many hours of my life I wasted, Jim, having that conversation on my Sports Talk radio program, which was like the laziest conversation ever, but that was the whole <laughs> point. If you, a non-bet is a bet that I think we're going to lose, and it's a signal. Now, Jim, as part of your career, there were so many amazing moments, but to this day, the ESPN special, The Decision, which you hosted and where LeBron announced that he was going to leave Cleveland from Miami, remains that network's most watched studio show ever. When you walked off the set, Jim, that day, along with LeBron and his handlers were there, how did you think that that went, and how did you feel about the show? I didn't feel there was a problem. I didn't have that crystal ball. Uh, And, you know, Maverick Carter shook my hand. LeBron shook my hand. uh, Everybody seemed fine. We did another show for, I think, uh, they had me ask several other questions, I think, for LeBronJames.com or whatever the – entity was that they that they had and so we did a, a, a short another interview for five or six minutes and, and then we left and everybody seemed to be fine well the second we got out of there and you know they went down to miami i went down to uh, the carnegie deli in 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 uh new york city uh at uh, dinner and then you know some of the critics started to call and some of the folks started to call and uh you know it started to cascade uh you know out of control and uh, as as Rich Paul and uh, Maverick have said, you know, nobody had that crystal ball and could have foreseen, you know, what what was coming. And, and um, so, no, I didn't I did not have that feeling leaving the show that night. In talking to Goats, you write that everybody involved in the decision could have done better. How so? Uh, well, I can start with myself. I should have set it up better. Why were we at the Boys and Girls Club? Why were those kids sitting there? Well, it's the largest donation that's ever been made in the history of the Boys and Girls Clubs. And those several million dollars have helped uh, uh, thousands of kids. I should have mentioned that. Second of all, we all could have been more sensitive to the fans in Cleveland after he made his announcement, you know, because that hurt them, you know, hurt hurt the fan base and, you know, struck, struck right through their hearts. And... You know, it's a difficult time for them to lose the best player in the NBA and, and a guy who's, you know, chasing GOAT status. So we could have been more sensitive to them and had LeBron either asked him more questions as to, you know, how it might affect those fans. And, you know, he's, he's a resident of Ohio uh, from Akron. And so, you know, we could have been more sensitive to them. ESPN could have done a lot better. Um, and I go through it in, in the book. In the Talking to Goats book, I, I explain where, where, you know, they were deficient and, and could have done better. And, and LeBron, you know, has gone on his own show um, and, and, and stated, you know, uh, some of the things that, that he would have done differently. Um, but if you look at that show now, Jim, 10 years, 10 years in, in the rearview mirror, that was the beginning of 
player empowerment. He took control. It was the beginning of super teams. Yes, there had been super teams before, but not because of the players determining it. Okay? And it was also the advent in many ways of how players now communicate. It was the dawn. He, LeBron took an hour of time on ESPN. Okay? Now it was the dawn of social media and Twitter and the Players' Tribune. And look at what we do now, all these years later. It's more interesting and more conversed about, and you do a radio show every day, Jim. During the middle of the finals, there's more interest, and not only the finals, but the entire season, of where is Kevin Durant going to play next year than it is while he's chasing the championship where he is this year. And you can go through this with numerous players, Kawhi Leonard. And so they all owe a huge debt of gratitude for being able to have self-determination because of LeBron James, and they made LeBron into a villain, and he's never been a villain. Look at what this guy has done, not only on the court with the four championships and all the finals that he's played in and the MVPs, but look at what he's done off the court with the I Promise School, with his social justice campaign, with voting, with voting, uh, with the countless hours that he has spent giving back to the community, okay, in Akron, in Miami, in Los Angeles, to the country. Okay, so this guy was never a villain and should have never been portrayed as that. And if you look back now, it's the Kurt Flood moment, the Kurt Flood moment for this generation of players and their empowerment. Listen, did you know a fire department responds to a fire every 24 seconds? We have teamed up then with First Alert, the most trusted brand in fire safety, to help you be ready for the unexpected and to review some key safety tips. As an example, smoke and carbon monoxide alarms help provide an early warning in the event of a home emergency. So having enough First Alert smoke and carbon monoxide alarms is one of the very best things that you can do for your home and your family both. You want to install alarms on every single level and in every bedroom of your home. Once the alarms are installed, it is really important to maintain them by testing them with regularity. And remember, alarms do not last forever. They do need to be replaced at least every 10 years. If you can't remember the last time that you replaced your alarm, it is best to replace that unit completely. Here's the best option in my mind. First Alert's combination smoke and carbon monoxide alarm with a 10-year sealed battery. This alarm provides two-in-one protection against both smoke and carbon monoxide, and you do not have to change the batteries for a decade. Lastly, take this time to discuss home safety with your family. You want to make sure you plan and practice an escape route, and remember to do it at least twice a year. And for more information on fire safety products, safety tips, and educational activities that you can do at home with your family, just go to firstalert.com slash month. Again, firstalert.com slash Fire Prevention Month. It's just amazing how everything changes, you know, how everything's changed since then. I mean, even on a personal level, when you and I got into the business, as you know, and you and I have been talking about this in this thread throughout this conversation, but back then, the world was so different. There was no internet. There was no social media. There was no cellular technology. Like, as an example, when I first got in, there, I mean, when I first got in, there was WFAN and there was nothing else, but I truly was obsessed with getting into the business and making it somehow in the business as somebody who 
had didn't know anybody in the business. So what I did, Jim, I started, I took upon myself this crazy letter writing campaign mm -hmm. and I would get addresses and I would write anybody and everybody for advice to try to network and get in front of people. I mean, I, I wrote Dan Rather of all people so often, his assistant finally wrote me back and said, please stop, please stop. You cannot see Mr. Rather. You cannot visit New York. We, do, we are running a news organization every day. I wrote Tom Brokaw. I wrote everybody in sports and generally nothing would come back except for Rather's assistant who told me to stop. But one of the people who I did reach out to who got back to me was none other than Jim Gray. And since you remember everything, I know you remember that I sent that letter to you. And I remember, and I don't remember everything, but I do remember the street you lived on and it was Bora Bora, which is incredible, incredible. to me. And so, you wrote me a couple of times and I can remember exactly what you wrote. Jim, I'm up here doing this show in Santa Barbara. And I had Tommy Lasorda on last week. Here's the here's a copy of that. Tell me what you think, and if you know of any place, you know I'd like to advance in my career. And then he did it again, and I think it was Magic Johnson who you had had on. And you know I made a decision really early on, Jim, um, when I was at Denver, and I had been on the air, and then a new news director came in, and he thought I was too young, so he just wanted me to be a videotape editor again, and I wanted to stay on the air. So I sent out all of these letters and all of these tapes, and I got a million rejections back, or I didn't get a response, and not getting a response just pissed me off, okay? That aggravated me. Because even if it was a form letter, at least it was a response, and I got back, use your hands, um, don't be on the air, you don't tie your tie right, your voice is bad, all kinds of stuff, but it was a response, so a no was a good response, but no response was aggravating. So I made a commitment that if I was ever in a position where somebody wanted something from me, I was going to respond. And even if I couldn't respond in a way that was, you know, what they liked, I was still going to respond. Because my dad always told me, if you can help somebody, help them. If you can't, you hope they understand. So I took that approach when I got your letters. And I said, Jim, just keep doing what you're doing. You're going to break out of this. And you were diligent. I mean, you were unbelievable because I knew the work ethic that you had, and I knew that you were determined to go and be great in this business. And so I got those letters, and I said, and I listened to your tapes, and I said, this is good. I said, unfortunately, I'm in the same position you are. I just have the job I have. And if I could influence somebody, I would influence somebody. And if I can recommend somebody, I would recommend you. Unfortunately, I just don't have a lot of influence, but keep doing what you're doing, I believe, is what I wrote back and you're going to get to where you want to go. Is that correct? That's exactly what you said. That's exactly what you said. And to your point, Jim, it meant the world to me to get a response and then to get a positive response from somebody of your magnitude because you were doing so well. And then you remember, because to your point, people were not reacting in any way. And then you took that time and you responded. And it, it meant so much to me. You know, and along those lines, Jim, before I let you go, like people constantly say to me, who were your influences coming up? But because there wasn't really a genre on the way up, it's always been kind of hard for me to answer when you were coming up who were some of the people the legendary people in the business that maybe you looked to or you wanted to emulate when i was young i used to listen and watch kurt gowdy hmm. and he was the american sportsman okay and i grew up in an afl town in denver so we used to watch the bronco games and he was great on the bronco games but he was local because he was just across the border in wyoming about two hours out of denver okay and he, you know he was 
he would talk about the University of Wyoming, and he was from Casper or Laramie, and, and so, you know, we felt like he was local in the Rocky Mountains. We felt like he was a big deal, and he was a big deal, because he would not only do those those, those games of the AFL, but he would show up at the Rose Bowl, and he would do the World Series, and he would do everything. So Kurt Gowdy was in my head, as, you know, and he was classy and dignified, and he just looked like he enjoyed himself and enjoyed people. So I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Look at the Kurt Gowdy's on it, and he always attracted my attention and my dad's attention and my brother's. Uh, there was a local man named Bob Martin who broadcast the Denver Rockets and the Denver Nuggets. They became the Nuggets when they went into the NBA, and he was the voice of the Denver Broncos for a long time. And here was just another guy who had a great voice, but he was, you know, one of those guys when you met him, he had time for you. So those two and, and Howard Cosell. And then when I got a little bit older, when I was a videotape editor, I used to sit in my edit booth late at night after the news, and both Johnny Carson and Ted Koppel would come on at the same time, and I'd have both TVs going in there. And I looked at those guys, and I said, Jim, you know, it's fascinating. They both had this quality that was unbelievable, almost like nobody else on television. They could listen, think, and react all in real time. But they were in totally different genres. One was in comedy, and one was in news. Koppel was on because America held hostage, going on in the uh, early 80s at the end of the, you know, 79 or whatever it was at the end of the Jimmy Carter administration, and Johnny Carson, who had been doing it for years, and so I just was mesmerized. And after I had done that interview with Ali, I said, if you can do that, if you can think, if you can listen, think, and react in real time, there could be a future in this. So I would just watch them both, you know, and that really helped me and then you know to have been able to sit next to and and be alongside for many events with Bob Costas who has that ability um you know later in my life uh you know it's just been marvelous to to observe and and try to learn from well that's amazing but first of all the, the comparison Jim between Johnny Carson and Ted Koppel is fascinating to me and Koppel was brilliant I mean when he was on Nightline there was nothing quite like that Bob Costas is the best to ever do it. You know, it's funny, when you talk about what it was like to see Kurt Gowdy, Jim, growing up in the, well, I grew up on the west side, and then we moved to the valley, but I played in Sherman Oaks Little League, and at the time that I grew up and played in Sherman Oaks Little League, Dick Emberg's son, Andy, played in the same league, and I can remember just a couple of times, Dick would come, and this was Dick bleeping Enberg, even in all of his glory, like maybe still working with the Angels, maybe still doing some local stuff, I'm sure some network stuff, but we're talking mid-70s, but there was just like this this element, like what an elegant guy, like like that's Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, all of them all rolled into one and such an amazing presence, like I was so blown away as a kid to see Dick Enberg sitting on the hood of his car watching Little League Baseball, again, one of those moments that you do not forget. Jim, one last thought, and, and this is kind of aside from the goats that you write about. Can I, I just stop you one second? Yes, please. What a beautiful word you just used. Elegant. Elegant. Yeah, Elegant. he was, wasn't he? I mean, I got to work with Dick Enberg doing NBC football, me and Paul McGuire and, and, and Phil Sims, and we did a couple of Super Bowls together, and I got to travel with him, and that was just a lovely, elegant, wonderful man who was just great at what he did. It's interesting. Go I ahead. I'm sorry, but by the way, Jim, to hear, hear but, you say that. By the way, I'm so glad that you stopped me on that because I'm not sure that I've really ever described anybody other than Janet as elegant before. But it just hit me in that moment that that's what Dick Emberg was. He 
And you understand, he was just such a classy, dignified, elegant guy. Now, I wouldn't say that Phil Simms is elegant, but man, I love him. I love <laughs> Phil Simms and I love Boomer. Both these guys are great guys. And I know you've worked with both of them, man. They're both they're gems, really aren't they? And, you know, Paul McGuire was so much fun. Nobody had more fun. I never met him. McGuire. I watched him for years and years and years, but I never watched him. What was he like? He was he was he was just incredible. I mean, he 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 was he he he'd only show up at the game with a flip card. Mm. That's how smart he was. And he 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 was so great with people. It was such a wonderful lesson. Everywhere he went, everybody loved him. Every organization loved him. Every coach loved him. And he just made us all laugh all the time. And you know, he he was a little unfortunate during his career because John Madden dominated right. the network. John Madden was, was a brilliant genius, and I got to live at John Madden's house at the Dakota, and John's a dear friend. But Paul kind of suffered from being in the era with John because John, John was the greatest to ever do this job, and, and, and unfortunately that shadow kind of went over Paul, and, and Paul had no resentment or anything toward that. But everybody loved Paul, but, and when you'd show up with Paul, if you were Paul's friend, uh, that opened the door for all of us because everybody was having a good time. So he, he was just a joy to be with. Yeah, that's great. That's a great story, too. So, Jim, you're in the Boxing Hall of Fame, and I grew up watching and absolutely loving the sport. I love the sport. I love the fighters. I love the characters in the game. They're just a different breed. So leave us with this. I mean, maybe they don't make the book as goats, actual goats. But looking back, you know, aside from Muhammad Ali, aside from Mike Tyson, who were some of your favorite fighters to watch and talk to back in the day? I loved Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Right. I loved him as a human being, and he was, you know, understated, but he was so true to the sport, and he was such a loyal, honorable, terrific guy, and, you know, a guy that, that gave his all in, in, in obviously every bout, but he also, you know, he there was just something about him that, you know, that was, you know, there was a presence about him uh, that, that was, you know, um, you know, he was he was just on that top step of the victory platform when 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 you saw him, and and he didn't have to do it by shouting out his name and 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 so forth. And Tommy Hearns, who was an opponent of his, was also a great guy. Uh, I I really enjoyed uh, uh, Tommy's company over the years. Ray Leonard, uh, who you know obviously rose to all kinds of great heights and winning gold medals and world championships and titles and so forth, and patterned his whole uh, life after Ali. Uh, those three aren't in the book, but uh, they they were they were just great to be around. And that era when I was uh, able to come in and do things and work for Bob Arum uh, in the top rank group, and uh, and then Don King and King Vision, it, it was a great era for boxing. Uh, more modern day, uh, as as we've come through, um, you know, Floyd Mayweather treated me very very well after he left uh, uh, HBO and came over to Showtime. Uh, so I got to see you know the hard work and dedication mantra that he that he espouses and from the inside and and see see all of that so um i've 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 enjoyed being able to cover floyd uh not socially involved with him in any way but uh uh that that has been a joy to see uh manny pacquiao um and and the way that he treats people um has been uh you know really rewarding uh, to see what he's done, not only for the people back in his homeland in the Philippines and serving in the Senate there, but uh, just how he takes care of so many people uh, that he's with uh, throughout the course of the year. Um, there are a lot of guys. I mean, uh, the best fight I ever saw was 
Castillo versus Corrales. Unfortunately, Diego passed away, but that was the greatest fight I ever saw, and you know, really, uh, uh, and that was actually probably one of the best interviews I ever did, Jim. As I asked him after that fight that he won in the eleventh round after going down, and Castillo looked like he was going to win the fight, and you know, the the ebb and flow of that with both of them, you know, on the canvas and so forth, and 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 that round of the eleventh was unbelievable. I asked him, "How would you describe this fight?" And he said, this fight was an honor. Mm. It was an honor. And that's how I feel about my career. It's all just been an honor to have been able to talk to all of these people. The book is called Talking to Goats. It's been an amazing career. It's been an amazing life. There is still work to be done. I know you feel like your best work could still be in front of you. That's how we have to approach it. Jim, I appreciate the relationship. I appreciate the friendship. You and I have shared a lot of good times. And what a great conversation we just shared. Jim? I'm so happy for your success. I know that Janet and Jake and Logan, and I'm so proud of you, and they're so proud of you as their dad and, 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 and your husband. And when I look at you from where you were to where you are, Radio Hall of Fame, and all of the hard work and everything that you did, you earned it. You earned it. And everybody can look at you as a model of what it takes to go about your job every day with the attempt to be great. And you achieved it. Such amazing praise, Jim. I really appreciate you so much. And I appreciate you saying that. And I would say the exact same thing about you. And it's all well chronicled in this book. I mean, decades and decades and decades of hard work and desire and asking the tough question and building the relationships. And it's all right there. And it's in Talking to Goats. Jim, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Congratulations on a great book, a great career. And I know you and I will talk again soon. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Jim Rome here. Why is Old Trapper beef jerky so good? Well, for one, there's something to be said for a family business that stands by quality and produces the world's finest beef jerky. Do not be fooled by the other brands. All beef jerky is not the same. Make sure you choose Old Trapper, where you can actually see the quality right through their iconic Clearview packages. Every single bite of Old Trapper is tender. It's never tough because they use only the best ingredients from their lean strips of beef seasoned with top quality spices to the real wood-fired smoke. Old Trapper delivers quality in every single bite. And Old Trapper jerky comes in four great flavors. Old Fashioned with a hint of brown sugar sweetness, teriyaki, peppered, and if you need a little more zing, there's hot and spicy. All are chock full of good protein to satisfy your manliest hunger cravings and to provide real sustained energy. Old Trapper is a better way to snack. Make sure Old Trapper is part of your weekly grocery list and keep a good supply on hand for you and your family. If you do not see it, ask for Old Trapper by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what is your beef? Enormous thanks to my guy, Jim Gray. He and I go back a long, long time, so that was awesome. What a great time to chop it up proper on the pod. If you want more of that, check out his new book, Talking to Goats. And if you want more of this, get subscribed so you never miss a future episode. And I'm back next week with Ben Greenfield on episode 154. But until then, here are your coveted voicemails. First new message. Hey, Jim. Steven Sanderfell here. Mark Sanchez, holy hell. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. You've had billions of billions of great ones, and that was right up there. 
Uh, happy thanks to all you guys, including Alvy's 400 kids in 19 different states alone, and everybody else on Hawk and his cardigans and your family and Rit and Big Head, etc. Have a great thanks. See ya. Message saved. Next message. Van Smack. Mark from Parts Unknown. Hey, I remember when Nebraska's black uniforms used to mean something. Of course, I also remember when we had rotary phones as well. Message saved. Next message. Hello, my name's Avery. My dad watches your show a lot, and I really just want a voicemail to tell you that. Okay, so bye. Message saved. Next message. Romy, Justin, and Melbourne. Let's just say I have a lot to be thankful for this holiday season. Friday morning, I was struggling to get my breath when I was at work. So I decided to drive my ass to the hospital, and I ended up being in a one-on-one fight for my life with the Widowmaker. 90% blockage. Let's just say 36 hours later, I walked my ass out of that hospital, and I'm making this phone call. Just want to say, Jim, even the Widowmaker can't keep me down. I'm calling the show on a weekly basis, man. God bless. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, my homie, it is JJ in Kansas City. How about those cheese? And your tweet was epic. Quote, the Raiders just learned why you don't take a victory lap in week five. Yeah, but the Chiefs sure as hell should have taken one in week 11. You rent double-decker party buses, and you blast up and down the strips, showing off the rings, owning the town of lights. Oh, that would have been an epic party in Vegas. Patrick Mahomes, he's my man. Message saved. Next message. Remy, this is David Reese from Alabama. I've been listening to you since 1999. I'm not here to get reps. I'm not even here to go on the podcast. But I am here to make a request. I hope that your son, Lil Alvy, has the archives of back in 1999 or 2000. Some poor caller made a mistake of calling up and talking about Jeff Gundy. Not Jeff Van Gundy, but Jeff Gundy. And in only the way you could do it, you asked if Andy Slyke didn't want some of that, if Eddie Halen didn't want some of that. And it was honestly one of the funniest segments I've ever heard. More than Boner and Sweatpants, more than Bohica, you going off at the drop of a hat was just hilarious. And if you could play that at some point, it would do me a hell of a lot of good. Thanks, Remy. Love everything you do for us. Message deleted. Next message. Pimp in the box. Just wanted to weigh in on the Garrett Ritt, Adam Hawk fight. My money? Adam Hawk, all right? I think he's got a secret rage inside him that could be unlocked as he punches and wipes that overconfident sneer of a Garrett Ritt. And Adam Hawk makes Garrett Ritt go belly up. War Sean in Syracuse. Tell that clone to get a life. Message saved. Next message. Bro, Dave and Indy. Man, that Burn Dog song, that's the, the worst and the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. But somebody needs to take hail to the chief and just drop in some rap lyrics over that for, for Rid. It'd be pretty simple. All right, man. Out. Message saved. You have no more messages. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.